The good news is we're not talking about sex. Inside of even our church, I think, like, we fall amongst this ditch in evangelical churches where either inside a lot of churches that maybe you've been into, I know certainly I have, either every single week they talk about money. And you could come into prosperity churches and you would think that money is the ultimate point of your spirituality. And you go into those churches and, and it's almost like the faith gets hijacked for another end. Like, it's, like the gospel is means to an end other than God. On the other ditch, and I'm, I'm going to be honest, I think we're over here. I think we're embarrassed about money such that we just kind of never talk about it. And I can say for myself as the preacher, I'm kind of there. Like if I didn't have to teach about money, that would be kind of almost preferential for me. Let me put it to you like this. You've heard this from up here. I think Tyler said it. I know it's a Ronnie thing. Is we get up here during offering time and we say, hey, this is our offering. Uh, if you're not a member here, don't feel any obligation to give. Like we kind of explain. But listen, offering is just worship. What you give is just worship. And we don't come to anybody and say, hey, don't sing the songs or don't pray the prayers or anything else. But when it comes to money, as a church, we, we're just kind of cautious about not being those people. Like even we've had discussions amongst elders in the benevolence offering about where to put it so it doesn't look like we're taking two offerings. Because we're just sensitive to people coming in off the street and the TBN culture that we have in, in reputation of Christians that while we want the money for benevolence to help poor people and we want money to come into our church for missions and ministry, we don't, our church ain't all about money. Amen? And so we're just, we're probably just a little sensitive. And all of us are coming from some sort of background when it comes to giving. Like, I remember growing up, uh, I didn't rarely go to church, but when I did, it was my grandparents. And in the assemblies of God, they have missionaries that have to leave the field and give a plea to, you know, like, give enough money to missions so that I can feed my kids. And I remember that being kind of a regular rhythm uh, when I was with my grandparents. If you're a Southern Baptist or another denomination, anybody remember envelopes? You know what I'm saying? And... And you got to check boxes, bro. Like, did you bring your Bible? It was a wanna for adults. All right? And you got to check this thing. And almost all giving came through an envelope. Right? Then it kind of evolved in, in the services. You've seen the magic bag that's purple pass around in the sanctuary. When I first saw that as a kid, I was like, what in, can, we, can anybody reach in there? You know, like, what is going on? COVID hit. We used to use the magic bags. Now somebody went into the kitchen and got these salad bowls. Because we, we're so socially distancing by putting the bowls up here. All right? And so that's how this all started. Then adults stopped coming. And they started sending kids. Tyler last week said something bold. I don't know if I agree with it. He's like, if you don't want to come forward, just trust a kid to take that forward. Have you read your Bible? Like, I don't, have you seen the kids in here? Uh, I don't know if that's making it, all right? But that's, you get an ambassador that, that sends your offerings forward. Do you know that now, we used to not even have online giving like three years ago. Do you know now we, we get more of our giving in this church online than we do, believe it or not, in the metal salad bowls? I mean, there's just been changes 
and how people give and, and the expressions of that and, and where that goes. But I, w- I want to argue that no matter what your culture is, the heart is the same. I've been all over the world and I, I've seen in Africa, what's really curious, I, I, I'd love to tell you this. When they do offering, they have the band continue to play and they line up in a dance line. It's like a conga line for offering. And it's awesome. Especially if you mix in some gringos who don't know how to dance. I mean, it's brilliant. And they dance with their offering to the Lord. They dance before the Lord. There's passages in the Bible for this. What's unbelievable about that compared to me thinking about today, you don't even know how to clap. Like, we did a baby dedication. You were like, is it okay? Is it okay? Right? The drummer was great today. All right? You don't even know how to clap. These people are dancing their offering to the front. For them, it's all in involvement. Here's the thing that I say. I was pondering about giving inside the American church in particular this week as we get into this passage. And the more than 11,000 unreached people groups that still exist in the world are not unreached because we don't have enough money. The more than 11,000 unreached people groups throughout the world are not unreached because we don't, in the church, in America, have enough money. The, 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 the reason we have not reached them is because we have not surrendered all. It's a hard issue. It's not a financial question. So here's the thing before we get in. I'm going to give a disclaimer. It might get me in trouble with Jarrett. But if you come here and you think that this church is all about money or you're hard-hearted and you've got to give begrudgingly and your offerings are just you forcing it or it's a show, keep your money. God loves a cheerful giver. He, he, that begrudging giving, it's not worship. Might as well keep your money. Stored up in your hard heart. It does nothing. Go home and get right with the Lord. Until giving is a joy. Then, come and give all your money to Jared. Because he, do, we don't need, our, he handles our missions and ministries. I'm sure the ministries in this church would say that they could use it. Do you hear what I'm saying? Today I want to talk about our heart. Who cares what the dollar amount is? Let's talk about our hearts. Let's talk about whether our lives are truly on the altar. Can we do that? I think there's a woman in the Bible God could really use powerfully to shift up your thinking on this thing. So let's pray, if you would, and um, dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, How majestic is your name in all the earth. The heavens declare your glories. Chief among them is what you've done in Jesus, sending him to die for sinners and sin. God, I pray today, um, God, even for the distractions that I have in my own mind, God, for my kids at home throwing up and the week I've had and all the other things that um, would even bog me down, and bog my brothers and sisters down hearing as much as I am preaching. Holy Spirit, would you come do a miracle and get man out of the way 
so that you alone may be central. Father, I pray um, for some sacred space here to encounter you, to get right with you. And God, if there's any part of me that I'm holding back from you, God, God, come and compel me to surrender all over again. Show me the way. God, would you um, use this poor little lady um, to bring shame to our sin and lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Thank you for your word. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Come and uh, guide us with it now, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. If you got the PowerPoint, we can go ahead and throw it up. Uh, Mark chapter 12, um, starting verse 41. uh, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. So pause here for a minute. The basis of what we're entering into here is a conversation about giving, about donations, about generosity, about church offerings. Um, And so I think it's appropriate maybe to put a little uh, biblical setting or context or brackets around this so that we can kind of enter into the way that they would have seen this story and felt this story. So in the Old Testament, there are what what some summarize as three different types of giving in the Old Testament. Go to the next slide. Um, the first one you're probably familiar with is the tithe. It literally means just 10%. Um, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 14, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose and to make his name dwell there. That is, it's supposed to come into this treasury or to the temple. And you shall eat the tithe of your grain and of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Note, note that giving and tithing is about respecting God and fearing God. Uh, Numbers 18, this tithe went to one tribe, the Levites. There were 12 tribes, and of those tribes, 11 of them got an allotment of land that they could use the land to get some sort of gain from it. But there was one tribe, the Levites, the descendants of Aaron, who got no land. What their portion was, was that they got the tithes from the other 11 tribes that was sort of a uh, sustenance for ministers or taking care of them who ministered in the house of God. So Numbers 18, to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meetings. So this is basically where um, the tithe kind of has its roots. Go to the next one. Uh, the second type of giving is offerings. Each of you must... This is an unbelievable verse. Okay, I, This verse, amongst all in the Old Testament, stuck with me about the passage we're going to. So if I can put an extra highlighter on this, like, please do. Each of you must give a gift in proportion to the way that the Lord your God has blessed you. No percentage amount, no dollar amount, no nothing. It was this idea in the Old Testament... We had tithes, which was our base starting at 10%. Above that was offerings. God just blessed me with the sale of something, something I didn't see coming. Or I'm just blessed by God. I show up and I'm able to give what's called a free will offering. It is, I, I'm under no obligation to an amount or any of the stuff. And I just, I'm just in love with God and stoked and I just give this offering. Sometimes we've used this same uh, language, a love offering. Who's heard that before? Um, or a, a free will offering. This is exactly uh, Old Testament root from where we get that. 
First Chronicles chapter 29, which uh, oddly we didn't coordinate this, but Dennis uh, highlighted. When the people rejoice, so they're building the temple, or transitioning from David to Solomon. When the people rejoice because they had given willingly. So pause here for just a second. The church is not the federal government. What I mean by that is, the federal government doesn't say, just give me whatever you think you should, right? That's an easy way to become a Canadian, all right? And so you, they have, what's odd is that they have an amount you're supposed to give, but they don't exactly tell you. You've got to guess it. But if you, a tax is required of you. It's, it's like if it's forced at the edge of a sword. This giving is willing. What makes giving in the church gorgeous and glorious is the fact that if you give anything to the things of God, it's because you want to. And we just don't have a lot of things. That are, you can't go into Walmart and give them what you want, right, for a lawnmower in there. Now, I guess now that you're the person that checks it out, I guess you could technically um, get arrested that way. Okay, so, but it's willing. And, and I, don't, I can't overstate this inside the church. Do you realize this is one of the rare organizations that is ran off of people giving because they want to? I mean, has that ever, like, like staggered you? Um, and with their whole heart... They offered freely to the Lord. David the king also greatly rejoiced. Later it says in that chapter, I know, David is saying, my God, that you test the heart. Notice here the centrality of the heart. The whole heart. The testing of the heart. And have God has pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all of these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here Offering, look at the words, free, joyously. That's free will, that, this is offering. Does that describe your giving? Free, joyous. Uh, so we coordinate on the, the services and we organize here. Let me just tell you one thing that we're not going to do here. We are not going to set up here for 10 minutes during the offering time and try to manipulate you. Like really, I've been to churches. It's a 10-minute spill of seeds and offerings. I said, we're just not going to do that. I'm going to tell you what we do. What we do here is we have people come up and read God's word. It's brilliant. We have people come up here. And if the word of God is what motivates you to give, it's a miracle. It's powerful. It's holy. It's different. If a man gets up here, like we find whoever's the slickest businessman up here, and we have them come in here and try to twist your arm behind your back, it's just not worship. Do you hear me? Free, joyful. That's the context. Uh, go to the next one, the last one. So we've got tithes, offerings, and the last one is alms. So we start with 10%. Above that, we give offerings. And then in addition to that is alms. Alms are gifts that we give to the poor and to those that are in need around us. Um, so one of the ways that we use a different word is benevolence. Dennis is over our benevolence giving. Every, uh, can I say probably every week by average? Every week, if not multiple times a week, our church secretly blesses people in our community that are in need with alms. Part of your giving goes to this work. 
Okay? And if among you in the Old Testament, uh, one of your brothers should become poor, and if any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart when you're driving up to Walmart and they're holding up signs like money for weed. Shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Deuteronomy 15. The next one. These are just Old Testament. I'm going to get into New Testament in a moment. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. Is that how you think about helping the poor? That you're actually giving to God? And he, God, will repay him for his good deed. Because you can't outgive God. Fascinating, huh? Okay, so go to the next passage. Um, next slide. Inside the New Testament. Uh, one more. Inside there is the same um, momentum. Now, I'm not, I don't have time to talk about tithing and whether it's a, a New Testament principle. Lots of people argue from the teachings of Jesus that it's there. But I do want to look at just that the spirit that began in the Old Testament has a full tidal wave in the New Testament. It didn't, didn't stop and then die and then restart. It's like it built momentum from Old to New Testament. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly. There it is. Or under compulsion. It's not a tax. For God loves a cheerful giver. That's, that's our posture when we come to the buckets or we send a kid up here to the buckets. You give online like it's happiness. Right? Okay, so Galatians 2.10 they asked us to remember the poor. Here's the same exact concept of almsgiving and benevolence in the book of Galatians. Paul saying, the very thing I was eager to do. Cross churches across the world is an eagerness to do good to the poor. Historic Orthodox Christianity has always cared more about the poor than the world. Go to the next passage. So, 1 Timothy 6.18 this is a message to a pastor. What is a pastor? A, a disciple maker, Paul, to a disciple, Timothy, who is pastoring in a church in Ephesus. What is he supposed to do? At least one thing from the pulpit. Instruct them to do good. To be rich. See, a lot of churches stop right there. To be rich in good works. To be, here's the word, generous and ready to share. Like, you shouldn't have to pray and fast 12 hours before you decide if you're going to be generous or not. You should be ready to share. 1 John 3.17, think about how important this concept is to the expression of our spirituality. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in needs and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's, that's tough. Alright, go to the next one. Jesus, maybe you're familiar with him, uh, Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will it be poured into your lap. For the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. 
This is speaking both of stinginess and generosity. Jesus, our master here, church, discipled us to be givers like he's a giver. Uh, The next passage, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Look at Matthew 23, 23. This is probably the primary text in the New Testament that argues for the existence of a tithe, um, even outside the Old Testament. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the context of where we've just been at in Mark chapter 12. Hypocrites, you tithe, mint and dill and cumin, which makes sense. They're going to their spice rack and doing that because of what they see in that Old Testament passage about every grain that they have. And you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. It's like you're tithing, but you forget about justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, without neglecting the others, which is, some would argue, he's talking about you should still tithe. But you should focus on what is the the center heart of the matter. Does that make sense? Jesus, let me pause here. Jesus taught more about money than he did uh, sex, drugs, or rock and roll. I mean, it is a primary topic. And probably one of the main reasons is it's such a ready-made idol. It's such a ready-made idol, isn't it? I mean, this is why even whenever we are his people, we have a temptation to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Like there's even danger. We can't even give money to God without it entering us into all kinds of dangers, right? Much less when we just go to the casino and blow it on ourselves. All right, so go to the next slide. So our context of our story is inside of the temple. Chapter 11 began with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And it's going to end towards chapter 15. He's going to be on the cross. So we've got one week represented by chapter 11 to chapter 15, okay? This story takes place inside of that space, okay? This is uh, the temple that existed during that time. There is no temple today. It was destroyed in 70 AD. Around the temple was various courts or courtyards that people had access to towards the temple, okay? We've already talked about this a little bit, so this shouldn't surprise you who attend church, you know, like semi-regularly. Jesus has cleared the court of the Gentiles. It's a huge, massive court that they basically turned into like Wall Street, day trading, storage closet. They cluttered up the place that the nations were supposed to come and pray to God. And so Jesus comes in like a middle linebacker and clears the temple mount so that there is no clutter between the nations coming to God and praying. That's one of the courtyards of that space. What we're going to look at today is a different courtyard that has more access. The Gentiles had the furthest away courtyard from the Holy of Holies. They were furthest away. And there was a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from what's called the court of the women. On that wall that separated, some of you that know your Bible, this should be setting off some some lights. In that wall that separated them, There was a sign that said anybody who was not God's people, not part of the church, not the covenant people. If you're a Gentile and you come from the court of the Gentiles and you enter into the court of the women, doesn't matter if you're a man or woman, it warned of the death penalty. Because there's a wall of separation. 
Further in, the court of the women, which was called that, which doesn't necessarily have all these prescriptions in the Bible, this is sort of how they operated, was the closest that a woman could come. Women and men came to that space. Then there was, obviously, inner court, holy of holies, which had limited access going into it. The court of the women, which is the context of the story, was where the treasury was. The treasury uh, was a system that was developed under Solomon, and later when Herod rebuilt the temple, they um, set up again these um, spaces where people could give. Inside of the treasury, there were 13 boxes. 13 boxes for offerings. So people would come into this space and they would give offerings. The first seven boxes were designated. So if we had a specific need or the temple had a specific need or the ministry had a specific need, these boxes had very, you could give designated to those boxes. In Old English, we would call these boxes coffers. Um, But we don't read the King James, so I digress. All right? On top of these, so the first seven is designated. The last, box 8 through 13, was undesignated. It was a place of a free will offering. Exactly like we talk about in the Old Testament. It's a place where anybody could give any amount. There's no prescription from the Bible what someone was supposed to give. It was just a heart thing. Holy Spirit led, box 8 through 13, you could come in and give. What's fascinating about these receptacles is that they had a metal mouth. If you'll go to the next slide. They had a metal mouth on top of them that came up. And so they were called, uh, these are the two mites um, that are there. You go to the next one. We'll come back to these mites. You see this metal surface. This is like a rendering. So based on the fact that it was metal, they used coin as a primary basis of their currency. You could tell what people gave based on sound. These were actually called trumpets, which you can kind of get the idea that the metal top is called a trumpet, and what people would give uh, would be deposited there and inside of the box of the coffer at the base, 13 of them, first seven designated, eight through 13 undesignated. Anybody could give whatever they wanted to. It was free will. It was Holy Spirit led. So that's the context. Let's get our character. Who is the person that's interacting with this space? What we know is two things about her. Two things about her. Of the widow, we know her marital status, that she's a widow. And we know her financial status, that she's poor. We know her marital status. We know her financial status. So let me just make a statement here. Her giving has a context. Would you agree? It has a context. It has a context. It's... She's representing all the single ladies who also are destitute and poor, maybe vulnerable, maybe vulnerable. Maybe if her money hitting the pot isn't going to make much of a sound, maybe she's embarrassed. Um, I love James Lee. I love James Lee because... uh, when we did our Awana thing up here, all the other kids are standing there in space. James is in a power stance, ready just to attack. I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe a demon. I don't know. All right? Sometimes comes up here, and when he gives his offering, the other kids are like, put it in there. James is like, now, babe, you can hear it in the balcony. 
right? If it's metal, right, it's going to hit. She's not embarrassed. I mean, she ain't put no big sack of money in that, that thing. For some of us, this is hard to realize because we use cash. Could you imagine trying to explain to these people how we do money? So what kind of money do you have? Well, it's numbers on a computer screen. You think crypto's bad, what do you wait till we find out about your bank accounts? Right? Like we have no concept of this. Like they had tangible money that had to go in there. How does she feel about that? How does she walk in? Is she is she proud? Is she boastful? Is she braggadocious? Or is she hunkered over? Is she trying to stay out of the limelight? Is she letting her left hand know what her right hand's doing? Does she actually want anybody to see her? This is a question. Look at verse 41. And he, Jesus, having left the previous passage, which I want to pick up, which talked about the exploitation of widows, now he has a story about widows. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people. Pause. I love this about Jesus. Like Jesus is a people watcher. And I do that all the time, so I feel like I just found my verse for it. Right? Like Jesus is a people watcher. He's going to come in, sit down opposite the treasury, and watch everybody parade in. Right? He's a a spiritual anthropologist. He's a cultural detective. He pays attention to details. He watches people. Right? He looks. I love this, because a lot of times when I study for sermons... Uh, this may be re- what, the reason why so much about Durango comes out. A lot of times uh, I study at coffee shops in Durango, and I love to sit by the big glass and watch the weirdos, right? It's just awesome. It's cheaper than a movie, all right? You just look up from your sermon, and you're thinking about sinners, and then there they is, all right? And I just love it, and they just walk by, and, and you could just, I, I enjoy people watching. And what you do in people watching is you see people walk by, have you ever done this, and realize, be like, this is what we say in the south i don't know if it's here but it's like oh that dude ain't from here you know what i mean like they just walk by and you could tell there's something about it you're like oh he ain't from here right um and what you're doing is is you're comparing everything else and how that person sticks out what you're doing is you're contrasting for instance to me there's a very popular thing that is happening all over the world and it's called the mullet and the in French, it's moulet, that's right. Um, and the mullet is very fascinating uh, Anglo-Saxon haircut. Um, and so this haircut is different, though. In, in, you can be downtown Durango and watch somebody from Europe walk by with a mullet, and it's the Euro mullet. It's got a different, it looks like it should, it's a soccer mullet, all right? You get a redneck from Kentucky. Walk by with that Kentucky waterfall, Cut off jean shorts, you're like, these are both mullets, my friends. But they are not the same. And what Jesus is doing here is he's going to contrast and notice differences. Husbands, this is exactly what your wife wants you to do. Notice. That's what it is. So what is Jesus noticing? He just doesn't look at what they wear because we read in the previous passage last week long robes y'all remember that he just doesn't look at 
where they sit. Remember I was talking about the places of honor? He just doesn't look at how popular they are in, remember the marketplaces and who greets them? He just doesn't look at what they say. Do you remember him talking about that pray long prayers for a pretense? He just doesn't look at that. He looks at what they gave. And I'll go further and say he looks at the heart. He watches people enough to see the absence of himself in the scribes. And he watches people enough to see his presence in the widow. He watches people enough to see his absence in the scribes. And he watches people enough to see his presence in the widow. Do you know what's unbelievably odd about this passage? Is the person in this whole setting who is most likely desiring to be avoided by men. The person most wanting to not be seen by man is the one seen by God. That's odd. Like he sees her two copper coins in a way nobody else at the temple sees them. And that creates problems. So let's talk about these coins for just a second, if you would. It says that they're two copper coins. In the, in the Greek, these are lepta or lepton. Uh, what's there? It was the smallest coin in circulation in Israel. Matter of fact, in this, when he says two copper coins and then he translates which make a penny, that is the writer Mark translating their value with exchange rates for a Roman audience who's likely the intention, as we've talked to since chapter 1 in this book, it's Gentiles in Rome. They wouldn't have known what these coins were. He translates that they're, it's worth a penny. To, to give you a sense of its worth, uh, a lepta or lepton was one sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. So two lepta was at best one thirty-second of a day's wage. So they worked longer than eight hours. We work eight hours. Eight hours of minimum wage work, that's the equivalent of what? Five to seven minutes of labor? Here's how I would translate that. Her gift was worth financially to the temple next to nothing. But to God, it was everything. Have you ever heard the phrase, um, putting your two cents in? Everybody heard it before? You know it comes from this story? Because it's a way of saying, like, I'm going to put my two cents in and it ain't worth anything. Which is funny because everybody who puts their two cents in thinks that it's worth much, much more than two cents. You don't got a penny to your name? How about uh, this, this one? If you're so poor, you ain't got two red cents to rub together. Anybody heard that one? I mean, these idioms are best translated. She's so poor, she's living on ketchup sandwiches. Okay, so here's the problem with that. Verse 43. And he called his disciples. He wants the church and disciples 
to get something from her and put it in their life. Right? He wants the boys to see this. Boys, get over here. Look. Pulls his disciples over and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. More? Jesus, did you not read verse 41? Rich people put in large sums. Nothing wrong with rich people doing that. Matter of fact, that may be actually a part of their own gift and stuff. Rich, rich people do that. He's, he's commenting and saying something that doesn't make any... Jesus, can you do math? Large sums are larger than two pennies. Got, like math, I know math's hard. Do you realize that we're closer to 2050 than we are 1990? Let that ruin your day. Math's hard. But I think I'm looking at the numbers straight. Right? I went to public school. I think I can get this one. Large sums, two pennies. I, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? Church, we don't think like him. We don't count like him. Either Jesus can't do math, or that he counts the heart more than he does the cash. God's balance sheet is different than ours. God's balance sheet is different than ours. You can give money to the Red Cross, charity, church, whatever. And I'm not arguing that all your giving should be here at this church. You can give without ever sacrificing. You can give and it never cost you. Generosity might be defined as giving that is determined not by the amount, but by the sacrifice. Generosity necessarily demands sacrifice. So, let me maybe think about this away. If Elon Musk, okay, he's a billionaire. Um, and so a billionaire comes in and he is listening to our services online. And he just has 10 million burning a hole in his pocket, all right? And he decides to give 10 million uh, to our church or whatever, right? He, it will, it'll affect his lifestyle zero, like, he won't feel it. I know that's staggering for us to, to understand. Jeff Bezos would not feel $10 million, no more than most of you would feel $10. Matter of fact, proportionally, he would feel it less. Okay? A soccer mom, single mom, with three kids, living on welfare, will feel every penny of $10. The $10, every red cent means something. It's just, it's different. Uh, and by the way, if, if anyone is listening, um, and you got that $10 million, um, there's a church down the street trying to build a rodeo coliseum. They could use it. Um, <laughs> we're going to edit that one out. 
It's just not the same. It's just not the same. Here's another way I would think about this. Gas prices don't hit us all the same. Right? If you are in a diesel truck driving right now, I got no idea what you're doing. Right? Are you coasting downhill? If you stop to get gas in a large dually diesel pickup, it costs you 10 grand, arm and a leg, and your firstborn. A soccer mom who is driving with gas thinks about gas prices and what do you think celebrities and politicians and billionaires think about gas prices like you do? You will drive across town for 10 cents cheaper gas. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They don't do that. It doesn't hit them the same way. Here's my definition of wealthy. I don't have to worry about gas prices anymore. All right? That's, that's it. That's when you, you'll know when you've made it. You just get gas anywhere, like some sort of wild man. Just expendable income. All right. It, it's not the same. We want to look at the amount. God wants to look at the heart. We want to look at the amount. God wants to look at the heart. I want to pause here and say something. Uh, I don't know where to fit this, but it's a rabbit trail. I have no idea what any of you give to the church. No idea. Right? Jared, I've never asked what any single person in here gives. Um, So if you come to me thinking I should treat you differently because you give large sums of money to this church, I have no idea. I'm just going to treat you like the rest of these sinners. All right? I'm going to treat you like you have a soul, and I'm going to teach you the word. That's it. All right? And if you're not giving anything... Um, Jared is forming a hit squad. He's in charge. It's in his lane. Um, Here's the thing. What I love about this woman is that she's a widow and that she's poor and that she gives sacrificially. And there's a way in which that reminds me of Jesus. I want my giving to remind people of Jesus. I don't know where to put this, but this is where it is. It's odd that there's so many women in the Bible that are great at giving. And I tried to dig to find some equivalent men in the Bible, and I came up a little short. Right? Like, you got this woman here. Do you realize that Mary is going to break perfume at Jesus' feet? Do you know how much that perfume cost? A year's wages. So I want you right now, put in your mind, what was your wages for last year? How much did you make all last year? Purchase Dior or Chanel or whatever kind of perfume is popular, all right? I mean, you'd have to buy a big old jug of it, right? And would you imagine taking a full year's salary and laying it on top of the feet of Jesus? That's some extravagant female giving. And I tried to find men that were equivalent, and it's like the boy who gave his lunch, but that doesn't even count because they kind of coerced him. You know what I mean? It's like, yo, bro, give us that lunch. And Ananias, not great, all right? End up getting killed for lying about it. Joseph of Arimathea, I guess that's at best him loaning his tomb. That's a loan. He didn't even permanently give it to Jesus. I get this idea because my wife loves to give. Like I was told by a professional counselor, apparently it's a love language. 
And mine has to, my love language is apparently figuring out how to pay for it. Here is somewhere, I, I just, here's the truth. I think until you get the gospel and you get grace in your heart, until you really know God and love God, you'll never give within a mile of this woman. You'll, you'll never give sacrificially. I heard a debate between an atheist and a Christian, and, and the atheist said, name one thing morally that a Christian can do that an atheist can't. And the, the guy looked at me and said, tithe. And, the, and the, the atheist was like, well, that's true. All right. Um, like, we're not going to get there without grace. This is not performance-based religion. You're not judged based on what you give. It's, it's the heart issue. And until God has your heart, your pocketbook is going to have your heart. Because you can't serve two masters. Church, I love you. You just can't. You're going to love one and despise the other, devote yourself to one, and shun the other. Do you hear me? You're going to come, you can come to church and play church and wait and watch the clock. Wait, get enough religion so that you can go serve whatever God you really want out there. Or God can be your God. And all that other stuff is other stuff and it has its place, but it's just not your heart. I think in, until giving is a joy, you are absolutely missing out. Until you see this, the single mom who needs her roof patched as a joyful opportunity, you've got giving twisted. Until you see missions as something that you get to be a part of and you give joyfully, I just, I, go back to the gospel. Go back to grace where God gave you himself. I, no manipulation. Because until the word of God and the mission of God stoke your joy and drive you to worship and inform your sacrificial giving, if it's a man-driven appeal to flesh, it's nothing. But if God's grace and God's word just puts fire in your belly to worship, it's just it's next level, y'all. And I want that for you. It's a miracle. It's different. This is not, if you want to the takeaway from the sermon, it is not, the takeaway for you to walk out this door is not, I should be giving more money. My goodness. Do you realize if I turn into a sermon about tithing, how insulting that is to what she gave? That's an, nah, we can teach about tithing. But here, we're talking heart. We're talking heart. And this gets into not the 10%, it gets into the other 90% as well. It talks about, is everything I have from God, and I am a manager and a steward, or am I the God over all my resources, and he's here to serve me? What kind of setup you got in your relationship with God? Is the car you got his or yours? Is your house his or yours? Is your savings account his? Is, let's get the real, let's, forget about money. Let's get the real serious one. Is your time his or yours? So we ain't got to talk about money. It's the heart.
I think the other 90% that we keep probably says as much about us as the 10% we give. Um, John Wesley was born in 1703. He was an 18th century uh, preacher and evangelist. In 1731, as his ministry began to grow, he started to feel the pressures of materialism in England. And so, as a result, he decided to live on what he considered was humble means. 30 pounds a year. This isn't actually pounds. This is their currency, okay? 30 pounds a year. He would use 28 per year, and he would give two away. He resolved to live like that and also, comma, make absolutely as much money as he can to give away. That's his objective. While not raising his standard of living, which uh, when I lived closer to Dallas, we would always call this uh, affluenza. You want to be affluent. So you get 10 more grand a year and you end up still being just as poor as you are now because you blow it on things to look affluent. Affluenza. Um, so, so while not raising his standard of living, he gained, made 62 pounds a year, 90 pounds a year, upwards of 1,400 pounds a year. Uh, he was an unbelievably effective fundraiser for missions as well as he was a preacher. The equivalent to this day is he was raising over half a million dollars a year to give away. Okay? So what is he now, with a half a million dollars a year at his disposal, equivalent in our day, what is he going to do? Here's what he did. He didn't change. The English, I love this story. The English Tax Commission, um, which is equivalent to our IRS, came after him. And they did it in 1776. Which, by the way, is just a popular year for uh, tax issues. Um, 1776 comes after him, and they notice with your amount of money flowing through your account, you have to have cheated on taxes. At that time, silver was such a valuable commodity, it was almost as a currency itself. Think of Bitcoin in ancient times. And the government wanted to come after it. And so what they did is they taxed silver goods. So if you, like your, your great-grandmama used to have fine china, y'all remember that? Well, they would have it in silver because the silver itself was so valuable. The plates, the cutlery, the cups, everything, silver. So they came and raided his house looking for silver. And they didn't find any. He was off doing missions and preaching, and he wrote the commission saying, I have two spoons at London and two at Bristol. At a, a, there's an orphanage there. He says, otherwise, I only have those for personal use. I have no other silver. I have nothing else. And let me just be clear. As long as there's people in the streets that are struggling, have bread to eat, I will buy no other. When he died, he had a long life, which is strange. Uh, 87 years old. Even the money in his wallet and the money in his dresser didn't account for more than like $100. And he even put that in his will to give away at the end of his life. He was a man that understood the joy of generosity. His, let me put it this way, his generosity preached. It preached something. Hers does too. Hers is the second, you could argue this, you don't have to agree, you could argue hers is the second most famous donation in the history of humanity. And look how much it is. You could argue this is the second greatest 
most famous donation above long after people forget the name of Bill Gates or Carnegie or Rockefeller or those of Kings. This is the second greatest donation. And matter of fact, what makes this one great is it points us to that which is the greatest donation. When God so loved the world that he sent his son and deposited into the treasury of heaven on your behalf for all those who have faith in his name, who his righteousness and merit and goodness was applied to our bankrupt account. She gave her life, all that she had. She had gospel giving that stirs us towards Jesus. And he grabbed the disciples and he said, boys, look at her. Look at her go. If you walk away from this, I, I just, I'm battling it, is not to walk out of here saying I should give more money to the church. I, I honestly don't care. Your walk away from here should be because Jesus gave everything, God hears my all. Whatever that means. Freely given, joyfully given, I hold nothing back. I think the way to say it best is the old hymn that we're going to sing. God, I surrender all. Can I pray for you? I don't know what you're holding back. Maybe it has to do with money. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it has to do with your job or your time or unforgiveness. Maybe you're holding back sin. Maybe there's something that God himself is going to have to pry your cold, dead fingers off of before he can free you of it. Whatever it is that God is saying, surrender to me that, would you give it to him? If you don't know the Lord here, I would say start with your sin and give him your life. If you're a believer that's accumulated, that which you're not meant to keep, I love you. Surrender it. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. Let him have it. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, all are surrendered to you. In heaven, you are given all glory and all praise and all adoration and all that is due you. Holy Spirit, would you come and give us a taste of that here and now? Would you empower my friends here, to surrender their sin? Would you empower my brothers and sisters to put their life back on the altar? To remember Jesus who gave all and respond freely and joyously in worship, whatever that means. We pray that in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Would you stand and respond in worship?